Yo, what's going on, guys? Uh, I'm kind of buzzing right now. Um, we just got done with an amazing interview with Bob Reynolds of Snarky Puppy. Man, uh, my mind's kind of blown some of the information that uh, <laughs> that we got out of that one. Um, so much fun, man. Uh, what a really just generous guy with his time. Uh, again, a lot of these guys that exist at that level, just their awareness of music and how they think about things. It's inspiring. His experience um, with Snarky Puppy and, and John Mayer and the various projects he's been involved in uh, all come to light in this in, in a way that I think is very insightful um, and educational for a lot of people. So I hope you enjoy the episode. But before we get to it, I just want to say again to if you're enjoying what you're hearing, please share with people, uh, like, subscribe. All that stuff really goes a long way for us. Uh, help get the word out about Bottom of the Bill and all of the local artists that we're showcasing, but the bigger ones too, to help get some more of a light in our, on our amazing scene here in Jacksonville. And then we also have the merch store, with Bottom of the Bill merchandise. We have the link in the description below. Check that out. Anything you can do to help support us is greatly appreciated. Um, so without further ado, here's Bob Reynolds. Enjoy. This is Bottom of the Bill. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here today with us, man. We really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Glad to be here. Yeah, man. It's an honor to meet you. I've uh, been following uh, Snarky Puppy for 10 plus years now, and in my listening and tracking of them, I discovered you, obviously, and have been listening to you for uh, many years now as well, and um, I've got to say, I just, you have inspired me in so many ways, so it's really an honor to sit here and talk to you today. Oh, thanks, Anton. I really appreciate that, man. Yeah, man. Yeah. Um, I want to uh, just kind of go a little bit back and, and talk about how you got started and what your background is like, because you're so versatile, and it's it's wild to me to hear you in the context of Snarky Puppy and then in the context of your own music and how vastly different they are and just your versatility. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. Wait, so what was the, uh, what was the question at the front of that? Or just, was there a question? Yeah. Just kind of, I, I want to hear about like how you got started and what your, your background kind of is. Yeah, sure. So, well, I mean, um, just to kind of work backwards a little bit, like whether it's playing with Snarky or the things that I do with my own group, groups small groups um or the very lots of different people that i've had the privilege to play with in their bands over the years i kind of always start from the same premise and and always have even though maybe early on i didn't realize it but and the premise is that i'm a listener first um so it's sort of cliche but maybe also not said enough it's kind of like the i heard somebody say it the other day like the the player is the first listener and so whatever the music is that I'm involved in, um, in any way, I just, I'm always coming at it from the perspective of like, what do I, what would I want to hear in this music? And that's, that's sort of the compass for the whole thing. So in terms of the versatility factor, um, it leads or it has led and leads me to different, different places and different people, not in a quest to, to be versatile, so to speak, like, oh, I want to make sure I'm playing, you know, X percentage of this style of music, et cetera. But just like 
you know, like Duke Ellington said, I believe, you know, there's only two kinds of music, good and bad. Um, and so it's just whatever my radar goes up for musically is like always what I've been in search of. And then I'll, I'll back into the getting started part, but just the things that I do as an instrumentalist, you know, as, as somebody who has to practice an instrument, et cetera, I just try to set myself up to be in positions of freedom once I'm in these musical contexts. Like I said, but Snarky Puppy is a, is an incredible example in that they in, in one unit in one band cover such a wide variety of music um so anyway i just i got started early on well it wasn't that early actually uh, i started in junior high playing the saxophone at age 13 so kind of late i think as far as kids getting started with music uh so that was seventh grade for me and that was in um i guess where was i orange park florida was where i started wow. junior high shout out um yeah it was i think it was orange yeah well lakeside junior high maybe yeah it was a that lake, was like lakeshore area kind of it was like gosh i'm having to really go back here it's i mean um i, I mean i sort of high school for me was in man i lived in mandarin and okay. went to douglas anderson school of the arts but the first three years of like actually you know any introduction to music started with me in concert band at lakeside i can't think of it, it was it was over um it wasn't near orange park high i can't i can't think of the area like i don't remember it well enough where the heck it was but just concert band started playing the saxophone mostly because there were only two other options it was like um what do they call it like home ac home economics i don't know if they still have that and wood shop and band those wow. are your three choices <laughs> so um so anyway i yeah i just kind of i started playing the saxophone and you know that thing when you there's a there is a term for it which i can't think of right now but when you become aware of something that you weren't pre previously aware of you then start to sort of notice that thing right it's like when you become aware of a car that you didn't you know you see a tesla and then you see seven teslas in the next five days or something right like once i started playing the saxophone i became aware of the saxophone just in general pop culture you know whether it was some guy taking a solo on an MTV video or somebody, something on the radio or Lisa Simpson, you know, I just, I just started to like, all of a sudden I was super aware of it. And from a very early age uh, that I got started playing, my interest was just in making music. Um, I think that more so than like, definitely more so than studying an instrument, I just wanted to make my own music. So it was like, what's the fastest path? Uh, let me take band. Okay, what instrument? Okay, the saxophone. Okay, now let me let's go. And so the the genesis for me always was in making music. And so where that's led me, I mean, the the path of playing jazz and improvising and such, it all just comes from that desire to play music that I was going to invent rather than what was on the page that somebody else already wrote. Right. So it's a long-winded way of getting there. That I had a very difficult time like reading music. I had no formal training up until that point so i had to play a lot of catch up however when the instrument was in my hand i don't remember feeling any sense of like oh you need to wait to start doing this like i just started playing i put it together and i just started playing and my mom says like oh you never squeaked or anything i doubt that's true but i just <laughs> you know i just had this interest i mean i would sit at my grandfather's piano and noodle around like i really just wanted to make music but i didn't know how <clears throat> and so that 
that's kind of a, that's the whole thing was like everything stemmed from there. And so I would sit in concert band and just make up my own parts until the band director would uh, get crazy and, and not get crazy, get angry and yell at me uh, when he figured out it was me. And then a couple of years later, I went to my mom, took me to a concert at the Florida Theater in downtown Jacksonville to see a, a bunch of different local jazz bands like high schools and such play leading up to the FCCJ community you guys are in jacksonville or in yeah, that area are. right yeah okay i just realized before i'm dropping all these names uh, <laughs> uh that would be meaningless but the um that the, the fccj band i think was performing like backing a uh, a really well-known saxophonist from the west coast and it was and the thing that happened was right before they did their performance the douglas anderson school of the arts first jazz band performed and I was sitting in the audience with my mom, probably, I'm probably like 14 years old or something. Um, and there were two, the band was amazing, by the way. Just the whole band was like, we had heard a few bands and then this band was on another level immediately. You just recognized it from the downbeats. They had my attention. And then there were a couple saxophone players in the band that stood up and took solos. And that changed my life, basically, because I heard, I heard the possibility that I, w that I was not aware of, that somebody who was maybe 18 months older than me could sound so far ahead on the same instrument that I was already playing. I, I thought I was, you know, pretty hot stuff at that point, <laughs> walking right. around the house, like just jamming along to the radio, you know, playing Kenny G melodies or something, you know, just like <laughs> whatever, you know? I thought, yeah. hey, man, and nobody else in concert band could do that. They all needed music on their, they needed their concert band music or whatever to read. So I kind of, had a very like inflated sense of self at that point. And so I heard these guys play and I'm looking at the program and, and just going, wait a minute. So this person's a junior, like I'm, you know, I doing sort of the back of the envelope math and realizing, Oh my God, like I did not know that you could play that well, that young. I kind of thought, you know, decades would have to pass or something. It just, it just blew my mind. I looked at my mom and I said, I have to go to that school. And so um, I, I auditioned. I ended up changing from alto saxophone to tenor saxophone because I, I recognized that the guy playing tenor in the Douglas Anderson ba band was a senior. So he'd be graduating. And the alto player was a junior. So I was like, look, there's only two altos and two tenors in that band. So I double my chances of getting in if I switch to tenor. And I did, and it worked, and I got in. And um, those couple of years at, at Douglas Anderson and the people I met, the teachers, the school, but the, mostly the, the the peer group, the people there um, that I learned from, I mean, it just sent me off on a whole other path. So I often tell people, like when they say, say where are you from? I'm like, well, I grew up in a bunch of different places, but I, from sixth grade to 12th grade, I was in Jacksonville. When I, when I arrived there, I'd never heard of a saxophone let alone jazz i wasn't particularly interested in music i mean other than i liked it what i heard on the radio and when i left there i was headed for berkeley college of music on a scholarship wow 
So that's a really long story. I should stop talking now. No, not at all, man. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's uh, that's what we're here for. I want to, I want you to get you know, to talk about all that. All right, guys. This episode is brought to you by Best Buds CBD Store. If you're like me, maybe THC isn't always the right high for you, or maybe the legal status of THC has you a bit hesitant to indulge. So at Best Buds CBD Store, they have an array of CBD and Delta 8 THC products. These guys truly care about their service, so everything is meticulously sourced and prepared to deliver a top-notch product and experience. If you head to their website, you'll find all kinds of educational information regarding Delta THC and CBD, uh, not to mention if you use promo code BOTBPOD, that's B-O-T-B-POD, you'll save 10% on your order. This is not a one-time deal. If you use promo code BOTBPOD, every time you place an order with Best Buds, it will give you 10% off. That's in perpetuity forever. So head over to Best Buds cbdstore.com and start saving on all of your cbd and delta a products enjoy guys it's very cool to hear that because you don't typically think about jacksonville as having like for for those coming from the outside like i'm not from here so i wasn't aware of the jazz scene uh as it as it, it currently exists now and when i got here you start to like realize how kind of prominent it is because of UNF and Douglas Anderson all having great programs and so it's cool to kind of hear the genesis of all that and and how it helped you get to where you were at. I'm curious as to what your experience li was like once you started getting to Berkeley and what started happening from that point on. Sure. So, um absolutely the, the you know the scene in Jacksonville at that time and this for me would have been the kind of mid to late 90s um it was an extraordinary time you know, between what was going on with the jacksonville jazz festival like you mentioned unf douglas sanderson fccj what what i happened upon and only years later can reflect back on and say you could call it fate you could call it whatever but you know i was darn lucky to be inside of that scene at a time when there was so much enthusiasm uh and musicians and and outlets going on for people to develop so there were people i could sit in with at you know at this r restaurant jam session well, they weren't even really a jam session but like somebody would have a some trio would have a a gig this guy kevin bales a piano player who used to live there maybe he his band was playing at a club in riverside and i would show up on a tuesday night with the chance of you know or the hope of being asked to come up and play a song that kind of thing Anyway, there was just so much music there that fostered this opportunity and people that I could be enthusiastic with. You know, like I said, other my peers, there's a wonderful saxophonist named Juan Roland who oh, yeah. still lives in Jacksonville. And he he and I were best friends. We started um, at Douglas Anderson at the same time. In fact, he is the like when I mentioned switching to tenor sax from alto. It's a darn good thing I did because he wound up in the second alto chair. So I wouldn't have wound up in that band if I'd stayed on alto. It would have, I would have been outside the doors. Wow. Um, so Juan and I go way back. But yeah, so then uh, I went to Berkeley and um, and that was, uh, you know, UNF was, was definitely a, a prominent thing. Like a lot of people kind of matriculated from Douglas Anderson and they went to UNF and maybe they went to UNF for a couple of years and then they headed up to Manhattan School of Music or something later. That was kind of like one of the lanes. Um, but uh, Bunky Green, who was the head of the jazz department at UNF at the time, he met with me in my, I don't know if it was like junior or early senior year of college. And he, he encouraged me to to leave <laughs> and not and to not come to UNF. We took a walk around the campus 
And uh, I have so much respect for him for this because he was the head of the program. It was his job, partially his job, to, you know, to to try and bolster the program, get good talent in there, you know, have the strongest program. Anyway, he just recognized that uh, where I was already at that point, I was kind of getting to work with people in that local scene, some of whom were already teaching at the college. And I was by no means some prodigy or anything like that, but just he kind of recognized whatever drive was in me and said, you need to go to like a big city and get out of here and go be a small fish in a big pond. And I was looking at University of Miami and University of Indiana and just basically all the places I could dig up that had well-known college jazz programs. I did visit Berkeley up in Boston and I kind of instantly fell in love with the city of Boston. I liked that it felt like a big city, but not New York. It was not as like daunting, you know, coming out of high school. Right, right. Um, and it was just had some had a, a really nice like New England charm to it. I'm originally from the Northeast and family up there. And um, yeah, I just dug it. And then the campus of the school and the technology at the time and everything just kind of sold me on it. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to I'm going to take this shot. And uh, I'm so glad I did. And I met, you know, as far as like my career, I can really trace it back to my time at Berkeley in, in various parts of like oh this person i met because of this other person but that person i met at berkeley you know kind of like all roads point all of my career roads in some way kind of point back to that time including um you know the most prominent person relationship that came out of that just from a um you know marquee status would be john mayer so he and i were the same class there and we weren't we weren't friends like we hung out we re-recorded something once late at night in our freshman year and that's where I, I originally met him and then like 10 years later i was in his band but it was sort of linked back to that um so you so guys Berkeley, you, sorry no, go, yeah, ahead, go, go ahead. ahead no 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 uh, i was curious so you, i didn't know that you actually played in his band you actually played in his like like in his band uh, what one of the like early formations or once he kind of already established himself as john mayer no he was already established so we we were, the, like I said, we're the same age and we were the same class at Berkeley, but he left after his freshman year. Uh, funny thing about Berkeley is that a lot of the people that they as a college point to as like people who went here, went to Berkeley, some of the most prominent ones historically um, did not graduate. They didn't finish. They were gone after a semester, a year, a year and a half, you know, I know and that's... then they're on the cover of the Berkeley alumni magazine. And so <laughs> as a sidebar probably my saddest day at Berkeley was the day I graduated. <laughs> I remember <laughs> my parents were there, you know, my dad was like, my parents were supportive, but I had this, it was never in my imagination that at any point that there was going to be a, a, a time where I like didn't finish college. It was like, all right, I'm going to music college, but I'm going to finish college. But I remember being, you know, maybe mildly depressed that because the fact that I graduated, I was like, nobody who graduates from Berkeley goes on to be successful in music. <laughs> That's funny. Um, it is like a, that. That is like the the, the wives' tale that you hear uh, just around yeah. the country. Everybody kind of knows about that stigma with Berkeley that the ones who become the most successful are the ones who yeah. leave early. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and I was like, God, I didn't get a gig. It's you know, it's not going to happen for me and. Uh, definitely, you know, my path has has unfolded over a longer time horizon. But, but back to the the 
uh, time with John. Basically, I mean, one of, it's an interesting story in that uh, I often will use it as an example to people to younger people who are, you know, college age and such. Um, I almost didn't. I almost didn't do that session. And that session is what led to me joining his band, like I said, 10 years later. So that would have been 97 or something that we met. And I joined his band in 2007. So just to come back to your question about wow. what period his career was in, he was, I don't know how many, you know, so he left Berkeley and moved to Atlanta to start his songwriting career. And so I, I graduated from Berkeley in 2000. And that was the, around the same time I was graduating was the beginning of John, like starting to really explode. He had just signed with Columbia records and he had that first album came out of his, the right. uh, room for squares. Right. And I remember hearing that around that time. And like I said, I didn't know I hadn't heard him. I didn't know anything about him. Three years had passed. I just knew we had done this. We'd done this one thing. And when I heard that album, I was like, this guy, this is going to be huge. Like the second I heard that album, it's like, this is different. This is, there's something really special here. Um, but I moved to New York and, and yeah, like I said, 10 years went by and through a series of, um, sort of random events, we got back in touch and, and he asked me to join his band and it was right after he had recorded the album continuum. Mm. So, so I was really, really lucky. Um, the time <laughs> that I toured with him was the continuum album. And, uh, there was like a like a live version of that album. We made released some extra tracks that summer, and then the uh, Battle Studies album. So I guess it was those two albums, and over about a four year span that I was in his band, two thousand to two thousand eleven. Um, and it all, in my mind anyway, happened. I mean, he he has a slightly different story about it, but the the way that it happened was that I went to this recording, and the recording happened at about three o'clock in the morning at Berkeley. And somebody had asked me as a favor, hey, can you come do this? They call them live to two tracks. It's where the engineers, people who are studying recording engineering at Berkeley, you know, their maybe their semester project is to record different types of things. They start with a live to two track, which is where you put a band in a room and you record the whole band to two tracks. That's it. So it's like kind of one oh one. Right. And because the because the Berkeley studios were in high demand, like basically around the clock, the only time you could sort of sign up for for student time would these very off hours. Right. And so I said, I agreed to do it in the hopes that the engineer would sort of like quid pro quo, like you scratch my back, I scratch yours. Like when I need to record something for some arranging project, maybe I can get some studio time. But I remember, I really do remember waking up, like setting my alarm and waking up at like two 30 and saying to myself, like, what the heck am I doing? Like waking up to go down and start recording at three o'clock in the morning. But that was the session that mayor was on and um another guy named clay cook who put it together clay has for years been in the zach brown band and he's from atlanta and he was the he was the connection to john um so anyway i said yes to that session we recorded this song and then when i when i talked with john about it many years later there was that but he says he remembers he he re, he just has like a memory of seeing my name on lots of flyers around berkeley like you know recitals like this so-and-so's recital in this room and and i would just be consistently on um a lot of those flyers i guess uh so for whatever reason you know it took 10 years from from um 
from the time we met to the time that I was in his band and a lot happened in those 10 years, but that was one significant connection that, that came out of my time at Berkeley. It's so interesting, man, because this is like, as amazing as that story is, this is something that happens so often in the music industry where you meet somebody at a certain time before they are who they are and then some something happens. And then there's always this kind of looming thing. I think less amongst musicians and more amongst fans or supporters of music, where it's like, well, this person made it. Why wouldn't they come back and you know take some of their people with them or this and that? And so much of that stuff is out of um, our control. Uh, even if you are the artist, there's a lot of moving parts that you're not always might not be aware of or whatever it might be. And it's all it's also just about who's in your immediate circle at that time. And then there's this kind of thing that happens and it's it's almost more beautiful when 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 your peers start to kind of emerge at the same place that you are from years ago and all of a sudden you can kind of reconnect and 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 knowing without without the specifics but knowing that you've both been through something to get there because you're both yeah. there you know and that's kind of a magical thing i feel like totally it's you're absolutely right and and uh and I saw it happen, and I've, I've continued to see it happen with various scenes. You know, in, in New York, there was a large group of people from the Houston jazz area. There's a big arts high school there that has produced a ton of talent. And, like, seeing some of those people like Robert Glasper and, and uh, Mike Moreno and Walter Smith and Kendrick Scott, a lot, a lot of Houston guys, when we were all in New York in the early days, like, they had a connection. Some of them went to the new school in Manhattan. Right. During the same time I was at Berkeley, there were people forming four years of young relationships there in New York. So when I showed up in New York, at least to some groups, like I was, I was already, I already felt like four years out of the loop with my, with my generation that was active. And then some of them went back to their high school, you know, like their version of Douglas Anderson. So those relationships that go back and sort of over time, that's one of the cool things about being involved in a scene of people. It's sort of a rising tide lifts all boats kind of thing, you know, and if you just, I mean, so much of this thing, man, is this career path is a, attrition. It's like a war of attrition. Like, how long can you stay in the game and 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 keep, and keep progressing, but keep um, giving yourself shots on goal, so to speak? You know, just sticking around to be uh, sticking around in a way where you're doing something worthy of um, being noticed, but like, you know, it might not be happening for you the way that you want or think or or whatever, but. It certainly won't happen if you um, like for me, let's say that ha that happened 10 years after. What if I had quit in year nine? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, 100 um, percent. Then you would then then it's like you were right there and you didn't yeah. even realize what was right in front of you. And yeah. And, you, I, and there's no way I could have. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, other other than this sort of just blind faith <laughs> ambition, you know, that uh, nope, somehow, some way this is working out. I don't even know what the way is, but you know, it, it things they stack on one another. So there was 10 years. I did a lot in those 10 years, but it, it felt relatively, um, I, I felt like I was underperforming just in terms of a career sense, not, not in my actual playing. I was felt, felt strong about that. I was developing and such, but I was playing with this band and this group that you've never heard of and so on and so forth. The, the gig with John was the first time that I could get on an airplane and the, when the person next to me saw the saxophone case and said, oh, what do you do? Are you in a band? I could drop his name and they would be like, oh, you're actually serious. You know, right. like I remember that 
that was like a nice feeling, you know, versus like, oh, you know, you've never heard of this person, you know, whatever. Yeah. It's just ego, ego stuff. But I mean, the, but the reason it, it's, it, it is ego stuff, but it also is like an internal barometer that I was always kind of checking in with like, okay, I'm doing the right thing, right? Should I still be doing this? Am I like, cause every fall would come around in my first 10 years of New York. And I would think I should go back to school. Cause I just felt scared. I'm like, I don't know. I'm working odd jobs and I'm playing, you know, gigs that pay no money or I'm playing wedding gigs that I hate or like nothing seems to be working, you know, but I'm still, I'm still working on my craft, but just like, you know, especially like, we, like I said before, I didn't come out of Berkeley like I wasn't shotgunned out into some kind of gig or career path or whatever. So the, the wheels felt like they were turning interminably slow to me. Right. Um, and you know, I just had to keep sort of sticking with it. That's kind of like where, you know, that's that's like the, what happens in, in this in this thing. And and it, it's I feel like it's what happens in a lot of industries, honestly. But like for in this one, because there is such a lack of a direct path. You know what I mean? It's like yeah, it's like totally. there's there's a lot of times where you can feel like in other industries. I would imagine if you're working like in sales or if you're you know a, a, a you know a market trader or whatever it might be, whatever your day job is, um, there's always going to be an obstacle or this this you know not sure if things are panning out or maybe not happy where you're at just yet. But because music is so uncertain um, and there's not this path, you can you can be in it for ten years. Or 15 years or, or some people 20 years before they notice yeah. any kind of real leveling up but it is about just kind of sticking with it i think and you know back to the ego thing there is something to being able to to attach your name to something successful not just because of this of you know what that the, the perception of it right like not there is that like you do you do want that kind of notoriety and that and 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 everything that comes with that but it, there's also this lifestyle that starts to happen there's you know there's 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 financial income there's there's a comfortability and stability that you haven't had for 10 years that you're like oh man this could really allow me to not have to worry about things like paying bills at least immediately and i can start to get ahead a little bit which allows me yeah. to be a better musician and allows me to be really focused on my craft more than having yeah. to worry about the day-to-day -day stuff, I would imagine, you know? Yeah, very true, very true. It's just like, oh, okay, finally, like, a stepping stone, like, something that that's like, yes, this feels like you're going in the right direction. Like, keep going, you know, there's promise here. It's It It wasn't like, oh, my gosh, I've arrived, and that's it. It was just like, oh, no, okay, all right, just just keep going. It was like a nice signpost, and, you know, it just, it just elevated things to a, a, another level, um, and like I said before, there's a, there's a stacking of, of sort of some of those things. And then when I moved to LA, I got a, um, I was, I got a gig on a TV show and like a house band and it didn't happen because I auditioned. It happened because the guy who was the musical director was a, uh, former Berkeley grad and new to the game of hosting, you know, doing a band thing. And he called like, He's like he called the Berkeley Alumni Affairs Director on the West Coast, and he's like, "I need a saxophone player for this band. You know, do you, is there anybody coming out of Berkeley?" And that guy I had just been in touch with, and I had just moved there, and I had recently come off a tour with John Mayer at that point, and so I was fresh on his mind. And da 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 da. -da you know, there were some videos of me on YouTube playing with John, and like, boom, I got that house band gig, and it was like, "There's another thing," you know, that happened through the sort of domino effect of it. Um, and 
you know, then year and all the while, by the way, I'm, I'm making my own albums as I go along, which was always a struggle. I didn't have a record label. I was, they were self-funded. They were really, really, um, that was always a big, big challenge, you know, to come up with the funds to do that. And it felt like, I don't know how, what is this? Where is this leading? But 10 years after, let's see, well, what year was it that I, not 10 years after John, but at some point when I, when I got involved with Snarky Puppy, similarly, the story there was, you know, I already had a body of work that like the saxophone player in Snarky Puppy at the time, like he was familiar with that. And so when we linked up, which was like a random event, I, I saw them perform at, uh, at NAM in, which is a national association of music merchandisers, I think is the name of it. Um, it's just an annual music convention in south of Los Angeles. I saw Snarky perform there in like January of 2013. And I happened to like write a tweet about how awesome they were. And my buddy Juan had recently hipped me to that. He's like, dude, you got to check these guys out on YouTube. So there I was uh, listening to the play. I tweeted about it. And Chris Bullock, the saxophone player in the band, saw my tweet because he followed me and he was a fan of my work up to that point you know my wow. own stuff what i'd done with john and he was like oh you're here like hey man i'd love to meet you and like so just kind of like a mutual fan thing going on and then he said hey we're gonna be back in la in april you should come sit in and so april rolls around i was on another tour or i was rehearsing for another tour with a different artist and got out of rehearsals in time to scramble across la to the other side of town and i went and sat in with them and that was super fun we had a blast at this club that they were at that time busting out of the seams of the club they were too they were a little too big for that club at the time but i sat in with them and then literally like a week later mike league the the band leader called and asked if i wanted to go record in europe with them they were doing a project in europe and that record ended up being the we like it here record which is the one with the famous uh cory henry lingus solo and, and yeah. other uh big hits um from that record and, and that was my first other than sitting in with them at this club in LA, that record was my first kind of at bat with them. <laughs> that was the very beginning. Obviously, for like like many of us, that that's kind of how we all became familiar with Snarky as well. And I've always been really curious about the the live taping of those and like family dinner and all that stuff. Like, is was that all? Was all that that stuff all done like one take, and then you guys are putting it out, or was there a lot of like? we're playing this song four or five times and we're going to use different angles and kind of mix and because you had an, an audience in there too. Yeah. So you're, it's a great question. And, um, it's, uh, it's a little bit of both and neither, uh, okay. I guess meaning, okay. So yes, you have, we are, the band is performing live in front of an audience and that audience is all wearing headphones and listening to roughly the same, you know, mix that the band is to, varying degrees so there's an audience they're listening to headphones they're there with the band the way we do it is yes there are multiple camera angles and yes there are multiple takes but there's no intercutting between takes okay so whatever whatever makes the album whatever album it is is a full and complete take but the way mike structures it is that like for instance that we like it here album I don't remember how many days of rehearsal. We probably had four days of rehearsal and then we recorded for four nights. And on those four nights of recording, we recorded two sets a night, two shows basically. And so we would turn 
you know, turn the audience over for each one. So that's eight shows that we put on in a four day span, all of them re recorded audio and video. And then Mike goes through and picks the best overall take. So there wasn't, there's no such thing ever as a take that's going to be quote unquote, you know, to perfection with no blunders or errors or whatever. But he's always just looking for the one that has, you know, that has it, that has the, the, the right feeling. And um, we, our most recent album, Empire Central, was a return to that format. We right. did it in Dallas. Similar thing. I think we recorded five nights, you know, two sets a night, um, which you have to figure I mean, we rehearsed, I actually made a whole, a pretty lengthy kind of mini documentary, like 20 minute video that's on my YouTube channel, all about this. Um, if you just look for, if you search my name, Snarky Puppy, Empire Central, you'll find it. And I documented the whole thing and put this, to address this kind of question actually um, in different ways, like how the heck does this band do it? Because we were, we learned all that music only five days before we recorded it. So the band is learning it in this like hyper- uh, intense environment where you're just like cramming to by ear learn from demos basically learn Fuck, from each dude. composer's demo and and you don't know when you're learning it um what part you're gonna play you right. take a guess this sounds like the composer maybe thought it was gonna be horn horns or <laughs> you know maybe maybe this will be violin maybe this will be guitar but you the running joke in the band is uh that came up during that session is lamb chops lam learn all melodies holy um, shit i love that because you don't know you in order to rehearse it as a band you know all in the room with no sheet music and people often go why isn't there any sheet music that's a because that's not the point but um you learn all the you learn as much as you possibly can and everybody in the band is basically learning all of the parts of the song and then we get together and we start to rehearse and you you start from whatever the most obvious place is but oftentimes like like when i was reviewing that footage it was funny cuz you know i'm listening to a song that we now play this way and the saxophones play the melody but in the rehearsal there were the trumpets trying to play the melody you know we're not trying but actually playing the melody um we switch things around, but in order to switch things around, you have to know the part to switch to. That's the crazy thing. So if Mike goes, you know what, let's try it where the guitars play the melody and the horns do this. Well, if the guitar players didn't learn the melodies the night before because they thought it wasn't a guitar player part, they wouldn't be able to execute that in the rehearsal and then we couldn't try it. So you got to learn it like... You know, to some degree, everybody's learning, like, as you're just cramming it in. We did, we recorded 16 songs that we learned in five days. And then we recorded them live in front of an audience over the course of five days. And then Mike chooses the best overall take. And that's what makes the record. Oh, my brain is overflowing with questions right now about this because <laughs> I've been in so, like, not those high stakes, but just, I, I really, logistically, how do you, with that many people in the band... And you have to trust, I mean, obviously you guys are all top-notch players, so it's probably, you know, a lot of what you're doing is, you know, in listening intuitively, like, you know what, like, how to play something when you hear it. But mm -hmm. there, there's got to be um, a trust with, every, with, with all those people that we're all going to come in knowing the parts. And then the assumption is that when we're talking about, you know, in the rehearsal space, designating parts that we all know what's going to, you know, how to just do it. Um, yes. 
How does that work logistically? And I w- I'm very curious to know if there if somebody shows up just not as prepared, like what happens then? I mean, very, very good questions, Anton. Uh, and, you know, I think the only real answer is sort of a, a sense of, um, you know, familial responsibility. <laughs> like, you don't want to let your bandmates down, you know, is basically it. So right. that schedule, by the Love way, that. you know, we we did like, a, I don't know, we did about four. You know, this was also coming out of, I mean, this we recorded Empire Central in March, early March of 22. So this is the the band's first resurgence out of COVID time. So like after like this crazy two year stretch of not playing together, we did a we did about four shows in Texas just to kind of like say hi, how you doing? Kind of get back together and play and get that feeling back. Uh, but then we had these five days hunkered down outside of Dallas and. The schedule was we were trying to get through four songs a day. So you so day one, you know, the night before day one, you're learning four songs Then you go in and we rehearse those four songs. But then that night we get home about nine o'clock to the hotel we were staying at and Mike would send four new songs for the next day. So you we would like everybody was getting like, you know, Uber Eats or something to just get some food in. And then 10 o'clock quietly in the hotel room with the laptop start to you know, listen to you bring, you know, and it, I, I, I get a little bit anxious just even revisiting it to tell you that story. It was the most challenging thing I've ever done musically speaking, like in my entire life. And it was a huge mountain to climb. I don't know how else to put it. I mean, the only thing that made it possible was the knowledge that to your question, that the other 18 guys were in their rooms doing the same thing. 19 God, of us dude. all together. Yeah. 19 people. Oh my God. Um, and, and you're just like, like I said, you don't want to let, uh, you don't want to let anybody else down. That's it. Otherwise I would, I would have said, forget this. I'm going to bed. I mean, but you just had to make it happen. So you'd be there like one 30 in the morning, like, okay, I'm so, what do I do? Maybe I can get up early. No, I can't. If I don't get this done tonight, there's no chance. And so, you know, you might be up till two, three in the morning, just doing the best you can. And then um, everybody was just doing the best you best you could. That's really all that that you could do. You, what you couldn't do was just be like, oh, this is too hard. I can't deal. You know, you just had to you just had to get there. And then the next day is rehearsal magically like this other kind of worldly power would show up, I think, and just support that good faith activity. I don't know how else to put it. It's. It was rough, man. It was really hard. Yeah, it was like really hard. I would have a just an absolute breakdown, um, like like because I, I couldn't imagine. Yeah. Like, it seems to like it, is he finalizing parts or something? Like it 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 would. Uh, this is probably a better question for him. But why wait until that time to send music that complicated to learn with no charts, just all by memory? And then, and then, with with such a little time built in to rehearse and then actually execute the album. Yeah, it's a it's a very fair question. And when when just looking at the situation, observing it, and you know, logically, it doesn't seem to make sense. And I get that. Um, but Mike knows what he's doing. Sure. And and there is a, an enormous level of trust and people's musicianship and, and work ethics and such. And part of the reason is um, 
more time doesn't necessarily give you a better effect. And by that, I mean, I'll just speak personally. I'll give you like Mike reached out in like 20 in the spring of 2021 saying, guys, we're doing a record. You know, it's, we're going to do this record. He already knew it's going to be called Empire Central. It's going to be in Dallas. It's paying homage to our time in Dallas and musicians, the legacy of Texas. Like I have the email from like March of 2021. So it was like, start writing. Well, we recorded this a year later and I personally, so I don't, I did not end up contributing a song to this album. I was, I didn't have one ready. I got psyched out all that time. I had a year to write. I could have written and I kept postponing and postponing. Guess when I started writing like the week before. No shit. Now the problem was, you know, I had little ideas and this, and I did little stabs at it, but with all that time, it was always like, oh, there's, uh, you know, I could put it off. I could continue procrastinating totally. until I couldn't. And the, and the problem I ran into was that there was just so much material at that point to learn from everybody else who was done. And by the way, most of them were similar to me. Like, it's just that thing. Like, everybody's sort of waiting till the last minute and in, a, in their own way. Like, each person in the band kind of has their, has a different threshold for what that is, but there was two at the point where I got started, I waited too long. It was too stressful. And then I was like trying to write in the same cracks that I was trying to learn. And I had to let go of the writing part because I had to just learn what, what everybody else had brought. There were about 12 different composers on this album. So I think over time the band has gone, you know, Mike has, has, it used to be everything was written by Mike. Okay. And then like over time, yeah, it's spread out. So you asked like, why doesn't he send this stuff earlier? Well, the answer is, I think he wrote four songs of the 16 on the album. Okay. And so he's not finalized. He's checking, you know, people send stuff to him and he has to, he has to sort of approve it before it even goes off. It's like, okay, we're going to try this there. That is true, but he's not, it's not so dictated that it's like, Oh, here it's super specific. We know exactly what we're doing because like I said, that is part of what makes snarky puppy, snarky puppy in that you can have 12 different composers and, Nope. The audience doesn't go, oh, you just recognize the whole album as a snarky puppy album. It all sounds like snarky puppy because it's going through this filter. And the filter is the collective sort of hive mind producers factory that is that band where each person is, you know, to some degree shaping each composition just in their, you know, in their own way with their own. It's like you're you're. You're trying to do exactly what the composer intended. And then once we get to that point and the, and the composer goes, yep, that's what I was thinking. Then you start to go, well, okay, what if we did this? What if we tried that? You know, what about, hmm, let's, I don't know if we need this section. And, and that's where the thing really takes shape. So this is what, what you were asking is like, hey, and everybody, frankly, has that similar question. Because it's not like some one person in a room writing a big band chart and then handing it out to the band. It's not a classical piece of music with a singular composer. It's generated by one person and then it is built upon or developed by the band. And the only way it can be developed by the band is if it's in a fluid enough state to be like enough is there that it's there. And then enough is left open that the, that we can start moving pieces around and trying things. Does right. that make sense? Yeah, totally, totally. And you and got so, and that and that last minute thing is just that pressure, man. That pr- like I said, the live recording, the limited rehearsal, it's it's 
those things that Mike sets up the way he sets it up, I'm telling you, you would not get the same result if you were like, hey, guys, we're going to record for a month in this studio. Nope. It would just be a ton of wasted time, and it's going to end up – I mean, anybody who's ever spent time in a recording studio knows this, well, like – whether you have one day or 10 days, you're going to be cramming at the end yeah, to get something done. For sure, yeah. That's so true. Um, and when you guys are going through this process of elimination or reworking stuff, is this all 19 of you in the room going through this process? Yeah. Oh, man, what a fucking holy shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm trying to let's see. Uh, let's see. If I do this, it doesn't. I know we're on audio and video, but if you... Well, I don't know, about, probably about halfway through that video that I mentioned um, on YouTube, you, there's definitely, you can see good clips of that where it's like, we're just all set up in a circle in a rehearsal space in Dallas, you know? And so similar to what we will be like for the recording, but for rehearsal purposes, yeah, everybody is just in the room and you're just, we would, I mean, you're just doing what you do as a band. You're just, okay, let's try it. Let's, let's take, you know, doing four songs in a day was a lot. But um, but we got it done, and each person is just like I said. You're you're just doing the best you can to to hold on for dear life and deliver deliver everything while making constant changes and adjustments. It's was like it's mental gymnastics on a whole nother level. Yeah, man, legitimately. And just one more question on this point uh, on this topic because I'm just it's the whole thing is so interesting when choosing songs and all that like there has to be obviously like like you said like you didn't contribute as far as like a composer on this record um there's got to be some understanding that this is not a personal attack against um your creative process or what you're contributing it just might not be right whether timing or musically whatever it is it's just not fitting this mold at this yes. time so there's it's got to be amazing to work with you know 18 other people that can set their ego aside and not come in with a bad attitude because their song wasn't recognized or get or getting the same kind of attention that somebody yep. else's is getting yeah oh man 100 percent. and i've been through that for now i don't know three or four records like we we did two studio albums in the years in between um uh, or before the Royal Albert, Albert Hall record, which is live, and before Empire Central. So we did an album called Immigrants and uh, Culture Vulture. Yeah, great. Both record. at a studio in Texas. And those were those were done to sort of counteract this whole idea that, oh, we're only a band that sets up in front of an audience and records live. That was, you know, a, a um, sort of very strate strategic sounds a little bit right mike just wanted to make an album in the studio that was like hey let's get to have fun and actually use the studio and not have that pressure of doing it live in front of an audience right but the songwriting and everything you just asked the same process like uh we recorded a song of mine actually we recorded a song of mine um and it didn't make it was i guess it was immigrants we didn't it didn't make the album but it, they released it as a single so it's like part of the album, but it's not on the, it's a, it's a, they really, and it wasn't just me. There were a few people that we, they released a few singles, uh, in and around the album. Yeah. You would, you would love to have, I'm sure everybody would love to have their tune and be like, oh my gosh, that's the best. This is all our favorites. We all love this tune, but 
that's one of the wonderful things about the people in this band. I mean, everybody checks their ego at the door. I mean, the right ego, meaning like everybody keeps the ego they need to do the work, you know, that we you need to bring your ego in the best sense to this band to deliver the thing that each person does that's uniquely them. Right. But you got to check that other part that's that's sort of the petty part of it that like, well, what about my song or what? You know, I mean, it's everybody has to it puts on their producer hat and it's just like, what is this album about? What are we going for? And Mike has the ultimate say there for sure. And he's shaping the design of the album and like what the overall feel is going to be. But everybody, I think just about everybody who's written for the band has also experienced writing for the band and not having that song make the cut. Um, And sometimes it's just like, it just doesn't, you know, there's a certain, you're coming up with this collage of songs and they need to, at the end of the day, all kind of unite in the right way to to make whatever that album is going to be. And then, you know, if it doesn't, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that the song's not good or great even. Uh, it just isn't right for that moment, and that's all there is to it. Yeah, totally. No, I love that, man. Um, I'm, the other aspect that I'm super curious about because I've noticed this happening, especially with a lot of bands that have been, um, I don't want to, I mean, for lack of a better term, DIY, obviously you guys have gone so far behind beyond that, but it seems like there's this there's this awareness of marketing and branding that that happens too i've noticed it with the wolfpack crew as well where um you've taken a similar thing uh with the guitar band and everyone's kind of taking a similar thing with their own ventures and applied this live uh, recording aspect and i'm and uh, i'm curious if this is like an intentional thing to help uh keep uh to, to spread the brand of of the, or the the culture of Snarky Puppy and everything that comes with that? Or is this just something that you've realized just makes more sense financially or otherwise to kind of do? Um, but what it seems like from the outside, as somebody who looks at this kind of thing and pays attention, is that there's a, a concerted effort to keep everything on brand to help cr- like grow it, uh, to grow awareness and create a culture within the music. Uh, how far off am I from that? <laughs> Well, I think um, it's it's actually really interesting. I so I my best answer is that no, it's not actually it's not what you're thinking in terms of it being uh, about staying on a on a brand related to snarky, for instance. But that's a really interesting perspective to hear, and it, to hear you explain it that way, I completely understand why it would appear that way. Um, I can say personally. You know, my the guitar band album, absolutely, I ripped off the Snarky Puppy model. Um, and in fact, so many have adopted that model over time that that's why Mike chose to spend a few albums I mean, not doing it that way. In fact, there was a... Let's see, when did, when did Empire Central come out? Was it this year or last year? End of last year. It was an almost nine-year gap between live video albums because they did so many up until a point that it became like mike was like we can't keep doing this like everybody's doing this now you know so what can we do this different so i ripped off that formula for guitar band and it was a little bit um the reason was only that having experienced it you know with doing it with snarky i enjoyed 
the 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 tightrope act, the risk that came along with performing live in front of an audience and recording that way. For me, I'm likely to get my best work that way because unlike in the studio, I can't go back and redo a solo or or even have a thought like, oh, let me just take another crack at that or something. So I get, uh, my, my wife used to dance in New York with a modern dance uh, choreographer and he had a saying, he always used to say, first thought, best thought. And mm-hmm. I love that saying because it's like, how many times do we self-edit ourselves? Yeah, I mean, man. I do it a thousand times a day. Um, and so the more time you have to make editorial decisions, the more likely you are to get caught, or speaking personally, I am, in, well, it could be better. What if I tried it again? Like, if I, when somebody sends me a track and I'm doing recording from home, which especially over the last few years I've done a lot more of, on the one hand, you might say, oh, that's so convenient. You can do it from your home studio. But I personally dislike it because then I'm judge, jury, and executioner. Yeah, totally. And I'm, I'm, I'm mostly executioner or judge. So something that might take three takes in a studio with other people and a producer where I'm sort of like, was that good? Should, you know, somebody saying, let's move on. If I'm just the, it's all me in a room, I'll do a hundred takes of something because it could always be. It always could be better. Always. Totally. When is it not ready? And so doing something live and on camera and in front of an audience, well, there it is. That's that's what you get. And and there's an energy. There's like a life force that comes with that if you provided you have the right cast of characters. Certainly, um, yeah, because that can go yeah. south real quickly if you don't. You know, there's a lot of people that you know maybe in a live setting. Um, perform like amazingly but then in a studio situation they kind of what's that that, you know like as soon as that red light comes on it's just it's all you're freezing up you know and then and then there's people that are that crush it in the studio but have a problem performing um so then there's like this there's this middle ground that you have to kind of find and i mean what an amazing job you guys have done uh cultivating this crew of people that just nails it across all all uh uh spectrums because it is it, it is it i don't know what like what makes you know that dynamic so difficult to kind of balance sometimes yeah but yeah. it's it is it is very real there are, there are performers there are session musicians and then there's the, the people that exist in between that are just like the cream of the crop you know they are different animals for sure i mean i know people there's a, a drummer i'm thinking of right now who he's very successful as a studio drummer and he's only done a little bit of touring by choice because he doesn't want he doesn't he doesn't love it he doesn't love performing live he loves working in the studio and that's his wheelhouse you know he can perform live but it's and then you know you have somebody else who's like totally a live drummer and but they don't have the chops to kind of make all these subtle decisions in the studio etc so yeah i think what you have again in the what one of the things that makes this band um, you know, one of the, the superpowers of the band is that it is a collection of people who have kind of have the ability to navigate those those worlds um, in a certain you know in a way that delivers the the desired result. I mean, to your thing about the do it yourself part, though, you know, by the time I got involved with them, they already had been a band for nine years, nine wow. years of road dogging it. You know, like vans breaking down like and that's one of the things that i really was drawn to besides the in a very big way besides just that i really dug the music 
was that I had a, an enormous amount of respect for them as people, even though I didn't know them personally yet, right? Like before I got to know them, just the fact that they were still a band after nine years of basically being broke, you know what I mean? The stories of, there's countless stories from that period of time of like coming uh, before I was part of the band, them coming back from Europe and they maybe just sold out, you know, some big venue in Paris only to come back and play the three people in Arizona. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, just to, to keep going and to be like racking up credit card debt, you know, all around and uh, here, you know, somebody going into the gas station to get a Coke and like their, their debit cards rejected. And, you know, Nate Worth, one of the percussion players, being like, here, man, just, you know, hop on mine. Just like that aspect to it. I found that so refreshing and compelling because it's the opposite of what I experienced in New York in the sort of jazz mercenary scene. Um, where everything was about like leader, sideman, you know, a gig, a tour. This is what it pays, you know. But I had my myself personally before I joined uh, John Mayer's band. I spent years with a guy, a singer songwriter named Jonah Smith, very prolific artist, made a lot of records. Never had a a big hit or a, like a traditional record label kind of success, but he's churned out a lot of great work. And for five years, I was in his band, and that was like a five piece band, and we would. Same, similar to Snarky, we were touring around in a van. You know, I was, we shared the driving, we packed, we unloaded, we were the sound. I mean, I, I did all of that. And so when I ran into this crew of people, I was like, these are my people. These are like, they're in it for the right reasons. You know, the music's great and has potential, but like, the I believe in the people. That's the most, you know, unfortunately, because we, we as musicians, we want to say like the music comes first and it does, of course. But in order for it to come first, there's this, this catch 22 that you have to really be connected with the people that you're playing with. You know, a diversity in backgrounds musically is is good and fine. But there's also got to be like a respect from where everyone's coming from, an understanding of what they're contributing and then. Yeah. Uh, beyond that i mean the hang is so important like just oh yeah do we get along and do our person do we get each other you know i can't yes. even imagine what that must be for you know a 19 piece band <laughs> how many personalities especially musicians at the caliber that you guys are all at that must be insane <laughs> it, it it really it's uh it's sort of the as yet uh, i don't want to say untold but lesser known or lesser told success story of that band i i've always said is is the people part of it behind because if you think about it now now we're talking about um I mean, we're coming up on 20 years mike says officially that the band officially started in 2004 so wow. um you know to keep the band together i mean yeah there have been there have been some you know in and outs and, and whatnot but by and large and certainly like the core part of that band to keep those relationships not only intact but evolving and growing successfully over such a long period of time is just like a i mean it's really really incredible i mean any, anybody who <laughs> anybody who's my age and grew up watching vh1 behind the music knows that that's uh this <laughs> kind of not even supposed to be possible <laughs> totally man and it, I, I can only imagine and uh because i want to get to some other topics but it's like there's yeah. so much here because like i can only imagine what must go into uh nurturing those relationships when you're not in 
the writing setting or the touring setting because obviously you guys are all doing different things and then yeah. there's going to be downtime in between tours and writing and, and all this stuff. So, you know, there's got to be an effort on, on Mike's part and everyone else's part to nurture the relationship so when you come back together, it doesn't feel like we're strangers again. If I, am, I, am I right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah you're, you're, you're very right. I mean, it, it, some of it just takes care of, it, of itself in a certain way. Um, and it is just sort of, again, it is the, the people. It really does come down to the right casting. Um, but my observations, you know, of... Of wa from watching Mike 10 years now be an incredible CEO, which is really what he is. Yeah, all totally. Because there's not just the band, there's the record label and there's the festival. Yep. And he's got, you know, his other band, Bocante, and he's producing. So just observing Mike be in this world is like, I mean, I, I, I say this like sincerely, he, he would not want to hear this. He wouldn't. But I, I feel like I, it's like getting to work with a modern day Duke Ellington, at least only from the good stuff that I know about the history of Duke Ellington. And I mean that in that, like, Mike doesn't think of a song and then get people to play it. He knows the players and he writes for he writes to them and to their strengths. He he writes to and for the band. Wow. And um, and similarly, the way he manages the people in the organization, like he knows he's brilliant at this. He's really brilliant at this, like. He always finds a way to keep you challenged. You know, like, let's say you're, we're on tour. Okay, the, we're going to play, we're going to choose from these 16 songs, like, every night. Okay, but halfway through the tour, some of the band is going to change. You know, this drummer is going to hop off and another one's going to come on. Like, right. Jay's going to jump off on trumpet and I'm going to come in on saxophone. It's going to change the instrumentation just a little bit. You know, 70% of the band will remain the same, but that 30 or 40% shift is enough to just like shake up the energy, shake up the, you know, uh, kind of just breathe a new set of life into it, even for the people who are on the whole month run or like night after night, you're playing the same songs, but he's never going to have almost never going to have somebody solo on the same song two nights in a row. And Whoa. he keeps meticulous notes. He has he can pull up any show that they've ever played and tell you what they played there. He has like an, this huge document, and he knows like oh we're in Berlin tonight. Let's let me make the set list. The first thing he'll do is check that document to see what the band played the last time they were in Berlin. Oh my god, man! So that he's not. And then like who's I don't know if it goes as detailed as who sold uh, sold on it. I doubt it does historically, but night to night. He's making those decisions so that you're always on your toes and you're going to get something thrown at you to some degree. You know, you won't know what's coming. But even within that, he knows he has a higher level um, kind of understanding and appreciation of each player's personal strengths. And so he can tailor like the choices of who solos on what songs to help shape the set. I mean, we, wow. I, this is again, this is. We've never, Mike and I have never sat down and talked about this in detail. I've, we've had a few conversations about personnel management and such, but this is just my, my observation, you know? Um, and he architects this stuff. It's, it's incredibly thoughtful, but it comes off as like effortless. Right. I, mean, I guess, right? Like that's sort of the definition of mastery, right? Like he makes it looks easy, but he's making a lot of things look easy all at the same time. Right. It's and really, it probably is effortless for him, man. He's probably like for, if he heard you describe that, he'd probably be like, I don't know, man, just, this is just what makes sense to me. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's, it's very possible. One 
time we were in an we had a long air uh layover in an airport and um and this is this is years ago and, and he brought me into the like whatever the airline club was because he's got like you know, million miler status status <laughs> on at least a couple airlines. And so he brought me in as his guest. Like we had several hours or in Australia or something. And even that, like on that trip where there was a lot of flying, he would rotate his guest. You know, he brought me in that day. And then like another time he would, he would, he just kept things. It's not like a tit for tat, keep it fair with everybody, but he just, he's always got that in mind. And so he told me at that, we were sitting down and he's like, basically I was asking him some of the questions you just asked me and about how he manages the people in the band. How has he managed to kind of keep this thing running so well? And one of the things he told me was, well, you know, he, he learned early on certain things that really set certain players off. And like he meant, he was like, okay, so for this person, I noticed that it really bothers them if there's not an opportunity to get to the hotel room before the gig. Even if we can get there for 15 minutes just to check in and they can just put their bags down, it mm. makes a difference for that person's the rest of their night. Or this person really needs to eat before the gig. If that person hasn't eaten, like somebody else, five other people, they could go and it's not going to bother them. But for this one person, they need to eat or they're going to be hangry and it's going to affect the whole band. And so he has this running kind of knowledge and so he said, as soon as the band was in a place where they could start to make some of those decisions, this person really needs to get on the airplane first for their instrument. They really have a, it really bothers them. So let's fly the same airline. So we start racking up these points so that he can get on the, you know, he can get on the plane first. Wow. Little, seemingly little things like this. But again, I spent five years in a road dog and it band and we came to blows all the time because there was nobody really steering the ship in that way yeah, it was totally. only like let's go play the gig and then there were these quiet dissatisfactions that just built up in everybody and just like they happen in a family or in a in a relationship you know with a significant other if they're not addressed if they're not talked about they you bottle it up until it explodes at some point and you don't even know and it oftentimes you don't even it doesn't even make sense right i'm sure we've all experienced this like and we're all human somebody just like, flies off the handle and you're like, why are you getting so upset about this? It's not about this. It's actually about the 25 things that I was quiet about before <laughs> this. And now I'm erupting. Right. Is that, you know, so Mike, Mike was again, brilliant at sort of managing that as best he could. And he always, always had, and always does lead by example. So he was never, you know, I remember watching that Michael Jordan documentary, um, the last, what was it called? The last game or something? The last yeah, uh, waltz. That yeah, the last waltz. But no, that's a music no, that, documentary. That's the band documentary. The last dance. Oh, the Jesus. last dance. The last dance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, I never asked the team to do something I wasn't gonna do. So that's similar. Like you know, whatever it was, and that makes an enormous difference um, to, to how the whole thing operates. And I I just thought yet again another level of brilliance. You know, it's such a level of understanding that that's you know. As, like somebody, I, as I as, like, I ran my band for seven years. We recently broke up, but I had a band that I was running for seven years, doing the road dog thing, and you know, being the tour manager and you know, all booking agent and all that stuff myself for yep. a long time. And just hearing that right there, so many things, you know, that as I go back and look at what I did wrong in those scenarios, or how, or how I can improve moving forward if I decide to take that route again. 
even those things right there are blind spots that I wouldn't have thought of. With all the introspection I've been doing over the last year regarding this, even those things were things I didn't really fully think about. So that's been just for me super insightful to hear. And I'm curious if you have, I mean, you must have taken some of that and brought it to your own scenario with the guitar band and other various projects. And taking that also knowing kind of building on you know this this uh perception that i had of the marketing because you guys also have a lot of the same uh musicians you know you guys pull from the same crew of people a lot of the time like mark latiri and and sput and a lot of the these guys that are kind of you know with their own endeavors so i'm curious taking what you've learned from mike uh as a leader into those scenarios and then also navigating the the perspective shift from you being um, a member of the band with these guys uh, almost as an equal part to now you're the band leader and they have to recognize you as that position whereas before you were just like they're equal in the scenario is that does that make sense yeah yeah i mean so in my in my part of it i was a band leader before i was a part of snarky puppy so i mean by the time i got involved with them i had i don't know maybe four albums out and I, actually i shouldn't say band leader because i wasn't i wasn't really touring but i mean a a person who you know makes records yeah. with a band where it's like their material so whatever that is you know i had Total. but but yeah um so I, I had that it's like when i joined them i'm not part of the initial like hey we formed this band in college right like i showed up 10 years later and they were already a they were already a thing and um and, and now I've been a part of it for 10 years. But basically, I kind of came in the, the halfway mark. Uh, where was I going with that? Oh, so just like when I, let's say when I did the guitar band, it, the guitar band wasn't actually meant to be, it wasn't called the guitar band. It was just, I had a night at that club in Los Angeles. I was on tour with Snarky. This was like November of, I don't know what year. But anyway, it was, we were on a, a tour in November. And, and it was actually Sput's last tour with the band. Um, but Sput was on that tour and Mark was on that tour. And I had this gig coming up in January in Los Angeles, right around the time of the aforementioned NAM convention, which always was around like late January. So I had the night, but I didn't have a band for the club. And so literally on that tour with Snarky, like on the bus, I was like, maybe well, let's just do, are you, are you going to be in town for NAM? Like Sput's like, yeah, I'm going to be there. I'm like, let's, oh, let's just do something. Like it's sort of, just kind of came from that like all right what if oh near felder is going to be in town dude let's do something oh i want to do something with two guitars that was the only idea that i had was that um one of the things that i loved about being in john mayer's band was that john included there were three guitar players there right. were always three guitar players and so when i would take solos in john's band i loved the feeling coming from again somebody who traditionally was playing in like piano quartets right you know i like or big bands or whatever the the feeling of playing with three electric guitars or two electrics and one acoustic but just three guitars i loved that lush feeling and so it, that was my driving force mark's gonna be in town spot's gonna be in town oh my friend near is gonna be in town Ooh, what if we had near and mark why did i even think of that well because snarky would often you know, we the record I had made with them, there were three guitar players on tour. Sometimes there were two. So my head was just in a place where I was like, ooh, what if I just take a few pieces of this? And then it was like when I had the band and I thought, 
oh, you know what? I just saw somebody, uh, another friend of mine recorded with this guy and he did a great job. And let me, I wonder if I should reach out to them and get this recorded. And that could be like a YouTube clip or something. So it was not me trying to make an album. It wasn't called guitar band. It was a night at a club. And then just looking to make the most of that opportunity with the people that I liked that were around and available. And hence there was no rehearsal. There was like the whole thing happened sort of like, I don't want to say haphazardly, but like Sput didn't even get there until like 10 minutes before we were supposed to start. And he was lost and we had to go down and help him with his drums. And that's what, <laughs> that's why we set up in a circle, by the way, and not like, Hey, we're performing for the audience. Even that was like, there's no rehearsal. There's no, there's not, we're not even going to get the sound check. I got five cameras set up. These guys, have, we've never played together. So I brought like the simplest music I could in the hopes that everybody could just like read it down and the audience would provide the necessary like nerves to make it just right. And again, it was terrifying. I willingly put myself in that situation only because I had experienced it with Snarky with the We Like It Here record. And I had found that, yes, it's terrifying, but also it's possible. And on top of that, not only is it possible, it's actually pretty darn good. Like, you know, you it, like I was happy with the results, even though it, it was it sort of tortured me to, to do it. So Sput showed up. And we just, that was it. So I didn't have any like super lofty intentions other than maybe we get a couple clips out of this that I could put on YouTube. That was the, that was it. That's so wild to me. This whole, like this whole, like just, this is like my, my world right now is like exploding because <laughs> I'm sitting here like putting this whole like mastermind genius thing into this marketing thing. I'm like, bro, these guys fucking figured it out. <laughs> and it's like, you're just telling me these are all happy accidents. Can I tell you from the outside? It's so like, it's just like, I'm like, bro, they're, they're pulling from the same people. It's the same kind of experience that they're delivering, but you know, maybe a little different, the music's slightly different, but it's, this is what, this is how you create a culture, man. They, they, they figured it out and Wolfpack is doing the same shit like in their own way. I'm just like, this is, this is the new model guys. We have to start thinking about things like this. And it's just so wild that it's just really serendipitous. It's just they're all little happy accidents that have yeah. helped to uh, that have helped to like create, you know, anything coming from that camp. We like like as a, as consumers and as fans of the music, we we have like we expect it to be at a certain quality now with 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 a, with a similar experience to what was previous. And right. be, because of all these happy accidents that have just happened that way, you know, it's it's wild, yeah. man. I'm I have no doubt that that the like the Wolfpack crew and the their spinoffs and I know Corey Wong, um, that there's there's maybe more intentionality on that side of it. Yeah, uh, and, so and just and knowing what Mark does like with the fearless flyers and such, like I know there is um in that way. But I think, you know, for my my per, my little slice of it is is definitely not that strategic. I love uh, it. Other than just you know getting the you know the right people, and and trusting and like being willing to kind of dive into situations that feel scary, and then just trust the you you know trust yourself and trust the people that you're working with that you're gonna get something uh, really good, hopefully really great out of it, even if you don't know exactly what that something is gonna gonna be um you know for me it it works and um 
not only does it work, it's it's actually more helpful, like I said, personally in a certain way than just like uh, going into a studio and being like really methodical about it. I, I'm I'm open to and and I like that vulnerability. It's like yeah, that that level of of risk um, is important to me. So it's like I, I try to set myself up to be ready for for those kind of opportunities. I love it, man. The whole time you were explaining how that gig uh, unfolded with the guitar band, Chris is over here just shaking his head because he just started a fusion project, and they and I saw them the other night, and they they actually learned one of your tunes with the guitar band. So oh, wow. watching yeah. him respond to that <laughs> has been hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, we we did. Can't wait for perfect. I'm a huge, uh, you know, oh, nice. fan of Mark's. Uh, you know, take as a guitar player, a, f- a huge fan of his take. And our sax player is a UNF guy and is aware. Oh, of it nice. Too. So, so yeah, it was just funny to hear that. I was like, man, I know. I mean, we probably a- put more rehearsal into that than y'all did to record it. <laughs> oh yeah, no, there was no, there was no rehearsal. I mean, none. Um, but the but again, the the song, that song in particular, and kind of the others on that album were. The intentionality I would say that I brought to it was like, I want to make sure that any piece of music that I'm giving them is like fits on one page and is not overly complicated and doesn't, you know, there were no like five page charts with intricate things written out, you know, so they were the, the tunes lent themselves um, to succeeding in that way. Mm -hmm. But like, I'm thinking of that song in particular of Can't Wait for Perfect, which I've recorded in at least three or four different situations or other albums. I mean, that's, that song has been, that's the name of my first album and the song on the first album. And, um, and even that song, when we recorded it initially almost didn't happen because, uh, I was in New York making that album and I had like two days in the studio with all these wonderful jazz musicians and my, my pal Yannick was producing it. And the night before, even the night before the recording, I think, um, we were just reviewing the songs we were going to play. Like I said, there are about 10 songs and can't wait for perfect was not one of them. And because I, cause it didn't even have a melody. It was just like the groove and the changes. And I played it for Yannick. I just kind of, I didn't say anything. I hit play on my laptop and he turned around and he's like, what is that? I was like, Oh, it's just this demo that I made. It's nothing, you know? And he was like, why isn't the whole album going to be that? Yeah. <laughs> and so, because I was insecure about it, I felt like it was, too simple for these i had these wonderful musicians coming in and like i just felt embarrassed i was like there's not enough here i can't even call this a song so on the second day of two days of recording and this is again this is an album of mine called can't wait for perfect uh i got up the courage to try that song and we were as we started into it and the piano players playing the and the drums and um we stopped couple bars in the bass player stopped the session ruben rogers an incredible jazz bass player um and he stopped and he got on the microphone and my heart sank i was like oh my gosh here comes the here's the part where he tells me how corny this is and he goes hey uh can i blow over the top of this and i was like what really okay and so we started it over and if you listen if you look up the very first version of can't wait for perfect it starts with an acoustic bass solo over this like rock drum group and that's all because that moment happened that almost didn't happen. Wow. Uh, fortunately, somebody stepped in and encouraged me to just like give it a try. And then I invented the melody right then. And then. so Ruben takes this great bass solo, which fed me. And from that, then I all there was was the groove and the changes. And then I, I made up the melody right there in the studio on the spot. 
So fast forward all these years later, we're doing it with Mark. There's a great moment in that version that's on YouTube where his guitar solo really like kicks up a notch mm -hmm. with Sput. Something happens. It's like halfway through and he gets into this thing, man. And it's like never in a million years could I have like, you know, written that into the chart. Like, okay, at this point, real, I, I, there's just no way. That, that's Mark being Mark and Mark being Mark with Sput being Sput in front of an audience in this moment in time. It's like it'll never happen again in the same way. And how fortunate that we got to capture lightning in a bottle like that because it's such an exciting moment. And, like, you don't get those moments if you're not in a in a situation that kind of sets the table for them. Totally, man. And that mean, you know, means it could all also fall apart. Totally, totally. <laughs> Uh, and like I've just got a, a nod to the um, to the simplicity of the tune, but like where the the complexity comes in to me, anyways, especially in the live version, is the um, the restraint and the discipline of all you guys to really build the dynamic of that because it is like a roller coaster of anticipation. Like like when I'm listening to that, I am so badly wanting to hear it go and you just like like you just don't give it to me <laughs> like, yeah, like and, yeah, and, yeah. and that's and that's that's like the beauty in it it's like it just builds and builds and builds and it's like holy fuck man this is uh, such an amazing display knowing what you guys are all capable of to just keep it right there you know what i mean yeah. it's 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 beautiful honestly patience yeah so the patience is, is and that's a yeah that's i'm i'm so glad to hear that it has that effect and you know that that takes a, a different level like a different tier i think of um skill or control or something that maybe just comes with time and experience um to be able to sort of exactly what you just said like to have a, have the ability not only as each individual but then like collectively as a group to sort of be patient and not just like let all the things that each person could do spill out and just do them you know because you can feel that it's there it's in reserve you can feel that and so then that's why it feels so good when it does come out exactly. and it does get released i mean it's again part of it i think is that a song such as that we didn't have to we didn't need to have a conversation the meaning the band we didn't need to have a conversation about it but it's like the song is fairly simple and straightforward in what it is so what are you going to do with this otherwise repetitive environment to pull something out of it that keeps people engaged and and when i say people I, like i said at the very top of this like the first listener is us the player right you know and so i if if you you ha like building a solo and building a solo as an individual and building a solo as a band like those are those are very uh important skills I, that i'm i wouldn't know how to really you know instruct someone to it's like you have to be aware of it and people who do it well, perhaps. And then you need a lot of experience in, in doing it. Yeah. <laughs> in, in what that is. A hundred percent, man. A hundred percent. Um, if, if I can just nerd out on one more thing that, that, that sure. you've done, I, I, uh, I, I learned recently, uh, I put together like just a one-off band for, for an after party show here. And we learned feedback. Um, and I learned your, um, you know, the head of it and all that. And I've got to say, your phrasing in that song i mean in general but like just in that song it's so like bouncy and playful and like i feel like i just i i'm just curious as to like 
how you're like feeling though it's 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 just it's 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 almost like a like a like a moot question to ask because i don't i don't really know how you put it into words but i just have to acknowledge the phrasing and the playfulness of of the timing that that, that you exhibit in that song that really oh, uh, thank you yeah man it's it just it's the nuance in, in your in your choices that really just blew me away in that song and it was and as a guitar player for me nearly impossible to to transcribe with the same kind of voice that, that, that you had in it you know i hear you i hear you thank you well yeah i mean i often think of myself as like a frustrated electric guitar player and i only <laughs> say frustrated in that i don't play it at, at all yeah. <laughs> uh, you know i mean so it's not like i'm trying and failing or rather every time i've tried to play a guitar i just get too frustrated to continue past step zero um but in terms of like the way that i hear it's like hear lines and such you know i know a lot historically guitar players especially in jazz like we'll talk about transcribing you know learning to play solos by horn players etc it's not that i necessarily have gone out and transcribed a lot of guitar solos but i've listened to so many guitar players and so much guitar playing like i don't know there's just there's an, there's an element in um it's too generic to just say guitar playing or guitar solos but whether it's pat metheny or eric clapton or stevie ray vaughn or bb king or you know like there's there's something about that i just like and i'm not necessarily going oh i want to play the saxophone like an electric guitar or something but i think i play the saxophone as a mix of other things that i'm not doing like it's my placeholder for singing or playing any other instrument it just becomes the tool that i use to for you know for musical expression so it's like i, I tell this to, to kids when i do master classes and such it's like you are the instrument not the thing you're holding right so you know that's the instrument yeah you have to develop the craft on and the skill on this whatever your chosen sort of axe is right but you know i think what you're describing there uh is that you're hearing me just be me through this saxophone and so that's that's the goal i mean i, I definitely do not always get there or or close to it but it's that's always my sort of goal is that like is to make the instrument disappear like the, the physical one that i'm holding rather right yeah it definitely comes off like there's a very you know i don't want to again limit it to to uh an instrument but like there's a vocal quality about it yeah that's very um you know like you can i you can sing that melody it comes off as like just the texture of it you know and and the way that you there's this kind of like release of certain notes that's yeah. kind of like you, it's almost like what note is that there, there's yeah it's a kind of ending this, on this in-between point and that that's a very to me a very vocal quality um yes. you know and it was just and again just the, the timing of it how bouncy and playful it was you know it's it's laid back but then it's on top and it's like it's pushing it's pulling it's all this you're just like holy shit man to try and like to try and like and and copy this and put it onto a guitar is like mm. almost not even just come up with a different way to do it for me you know what i mean right right it was just right. really inspiring like i really took a oh, lot from learning that 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 head you know well thank you thank you so much yeah man um anyways uh we you've been so generous with your time bob really appreciate you being here with us man this has been such an insightful conversation um my pleasure 
Yeah, man. Uh, I, I'm curious, uh, before we go real quick, I'm, I'm going to be in LA in, in like next month. I was curious, any spots that you, that you can recommend uh, for jam sessions or even uh, I'm a songwriter, any open mics I can like kind of hit while I'm out there that you're aware of? Uh, I would look up, I don't know specifically about open mics other than there's a club called the Hotel Cafe. That's a great singer-songwriter club in Hollywood that I've I've played at a lot with um, my friend David Ryan Harris, who uh, has lived in L.A. for a long time. He recently moved to Atlanta. But anyway, the Hotel Cafe is a good spot um, for singer-songwriters, and they might have something like that. There's another place called ETA, which is in, like, Silver Lake, which, ha- which has some cool music happening pretty regularly now. Okay. Um, uh, the baked potato is not is is a is the kind of the predominant jazz club in town. I think like local jazz club, meaning it's where I play, um, meaning local, not like there's Catalinas, but Catalinas is kind of like, you know, they it brings in Broadway singers that are play anyway. Gotcha. Off topic. It's a big. It's a big kind of commercial club. The baked potato is kind of like the spot. Like I would say, like try to try to catch something at the baked potato cool um and other than that i don't know like i'm i might not be the the right person to answer that question best right now i feel like i'm not as tuned into the the brand new stuff here oh no it's all good i was just curious i um but yeah man i'm uh again just super stoked to uh to talk to you i appreciate the insight and um you know good luck with everything i'm stoked to hear uh i'm gonna keep following stoked to hear what you're putting out with snarky puppy and all your stuff man you're just you're, you're you're amazing Thanks, Anton. I appreciate it, man. Thank you very much. Yeah, man. Uh, have a good one, bro. We'll talk to you soon. All right. You too. All right. Cheers. Bye.